So, as usual, some very interesting questions came in. Feels like we've been on a bit of a journey together. It's getting close to uh, you know, the end. It's a little retreat. So, uh, I have a, quite a few questions here. There are a few that um, apply to uh, you know, sort of taking the practice in everyday life, and I kind of put them at the bottom. And, we can get to them tonight, fine, but if we don't, I'm going to, they're good questions. I'll address them tomorrow in closing, because the closing is really a lot about that theme of, of taking the practice, not just the sitting practice, but taking your life outside of IMS as a practice. So we'll, we'll talk about that in the closing. There'll be a short Q&A during that period, too, but um, kind of, we'll just start right here. How about, uh, why are all the... Uh, why are all but one of the Buddha's statues so skinny? <laughs> so, well, the Buddha was not known to be a big eater, to be quite frank. On a good day, he had one meal, from what I hear. Um, so, he was an ascetic for many years, you know, stories about him really being reduced totally to skin and bones. And um, I think those statues kind of um, idealize him or focus on that particular period. But I'm sure when he was a monk and teaching the Dharma, um, probably average, you know, I don't know. (laughs) Whatever that was at the time on one meal a day. <laughs> I doubt he looked like one of those little guys there. <laughs> I'm quite sure of that, actually. He was never accused of... Well, I won't go into it. Um, um, how can I learn more about uh, no-self? Uh, you could re-listen to my tape <laughs> when you go home. Uh, you know, one, one really helpful way of... of um, learning about Dharma and the teachings of the Dharma, and if you if if a particular theme like the five khandhas, not self theme, or other themes, um, I put a sign up on the board, you know, talking about a particular website that you could go to. That's an amazing resource. Uh, so if like you were interested in a particular theme like eating, literally, if you were interested in that particular theme, you'd go to that website, you'd hit the search eating and discourses of the Buddha that had something to do with that would come up. You know? I mean, in, in really, really competent, skillful translations. A lot of them from, um, I know it was Tanjeff, but I think it's Tanasaro Bhikkhu and um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, both you know, brilliant translators. So that's like going to the source too, you know? <laughs> I mean... It's great. And then, of course, there's Dharma Seed that I'm sure a lot of you know about where a lot of the Western teachers are, and IMS teachers are recorded on. So there's a lot of sources right online that's so easy to get. All you have to do is just one theme, especially the, the Access to Insight uh, website. I think it's actually an app, too. Um, and, you know, you can just, it's anything you're really interested in. Fear, bing, P- punch in fear, and you'll get a bunch of suttas that, that um, go to that. And, um, 
Oh, so can you talk a little about the reason our dreams have been so clear, intense, and memorable? Yeah, I've given a lot of thought to that because that's been my experience as a meditator also. Um, not at all phases of my practice, but quite a few. Um, and I, and I, the way I see it, I guess, is kind of the classical you know, material surfacing, having done so much work. I mean, you can see that in your sitting, you know, your daily sitting. I mean, the, the sitting in the hall, just how you know, we're kind of paving the way for things that may have been buried to surface, and then we're learning to relate to them in a different way, things that we've accumulated psychically, emotionally, physically. And so I, I think when you drop into that sleep place, a lot of that material surfaces. <laughs> I had a dream last night, uh, one of my teeth fell out. It was disturbing, because I was on retreat. What was I going to do? So to look into meaning of that is not so helpful, but it just shows you. The dream world is alive and well often on retreats. Dreams can be very intense, very strong. Uh, where is, was Pali spoken? It's not. It's actually a written language, Pali. And it's the language in which the Buddha's uh, discourses were translated and written down. So Pali is not. Pali is close to Sanskrit, but Pali is a written language. Sanskrit's more spoken and written, of course. Um, can you say more about how we have everything we need within us? Well, we don't have everything within us, you know, but we, you know, in terms of we're interdependent on each other. I think that's very important to recognize that we're not uh, some self-reliant, autonomous being. Uh, we, we actually depend on each other way more than we are conscious of because of, uh, because of that sense of self, you know, creating this bubble of self, and then you, you're really disconnected from others in a lot of ways. You're disconnected to how dependent we are of other people's services and what they provide to us, and oftentimes we're disconnected from uh, different cultures and different worlds. So. Uh, but yet we're all dependent, extremely independent, this globe. Uh, so you, you couldn't say that uh, we have everything we need within us. But certainly um, the spiritual journey, um, the qualities of mind that we're developing are all within us. Uh, and what we're doing on retreat, for instance, or what we're doing when we study the Dharma or practice sitting and walking, is where we're cultivating conditions that will bring out those resources. And it's sort of like, you know, you want a higher education, you go to college, I guess. Um, you want to nurture those qualities like mindfulness, compassion, wisdom, go to a retreat center or you go into formal practice where those are the qualities that uh, this particular method are designed to bring out. But they're not creating or manufacturing feelings. That's not, you know, it's not about the, the Buddha talked about the suffering of becoming. You know, so it's not, meditation practice is not about becoming, it's about releasing and really returning to your true nature. And the, all the qualities that we're developing here are aspects of our true nature. They're innate qualities. Compassion is an innate quality. Now you can cultivate it, but you really, what you're, all you're really doing is cultivating access to it. So in some ways you're not cultivating it, but you're cultivating the ability to touch it and to, and to nurture it and strengthen it so that it arises in appropriate times. Same with wisdom. So those resources are within us, and that's what we're nurturing. And I think that's very important because sometimes people look outside of themselves, and sometimes, like all the time, uh, look outside of themselves to, to get that kind of, whether it's the kind of understanding. You know, sometimes there's, in our culture, I've noticed, oftentimes there's a fixation on the people that do know, you know, and maybe have been on the path or 
uh, have some wisdom. And the focus is on what can they give us. And, 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 and it's not to say that teachers aren't really incredibly valuable because they have been on my path, and I know for Sarah the same thing. It's just that um, it's important to realize that maybe you know, the teachings and we can, uh, you know, all of us practicing together, we can all help facilitate that nurturing and access to those innate qualities. But it's very important to realize that they're within you. No, you don't need anybody to give them to you to make you more compassionate, more wise. It doesn't work that way. You have to earn your freedom. Nobody, nobody can really just bless you into freedom. Or, so it's not from the outside. But we are very interdependent, and I think that's very important. Sometimes we think, you know, sometimes the language is tricky. You know, we'll say, oh yeah, it's all within you. Well, you know, sure. Uh, the spiritual path, you're developing qualities within you, but meanwhile you're a human being living on a planet. And you can see how important it is to take care of the planet. Um, very, very important. So we don't want to forget that. Please talk about the difference between aversion to pain and making adjustments in life or in body position to avoid injury. Well, I think you should always avoid injury. Definitely. So that, you know, that, that's wisdom to me. But if you're talking about, like, say, you're because uh, injury is a different story than, say, when you're sitting and you're sitting with pain, trying to decide what to do, you know, trying to decide what's discerning. You know, should I move into a different posture? Should I do some standing? Uh, should I shift my body? Uh, you know, a lot of times that, that can be done in different ways. You know, it can be done with aversion, which is contraction, contraction, aversion, judging, identifying with the pain, self-judgment. Um, fear, and so that can be the intention in the moving process itself, or restlessness. Okay, um, but it also could be wise and compassionate to make that shift and move the body and take care of the body and not not sit in pain. And and you know, mindfulness practice is pretty simple. Just be aware of what's happening. But I might have said this already. But discernment is more complicated than that. You, know, you have to take the whole context of your decision-making and the choices you're, you're making. Um, you have to take the entire context in, into account when, you, when you're making decisions. And so much of that depends on your history, the situation that you're in, the present moment. And you know what we always say at CIMC, you know, we meet with people and we talk to them uh, on a regular basis and, and we, we see how complicated their situations are. And you know, We all live in a very complex world, but we're, our, our own worlds are very complex often. So there's no formula uh, for how to act or how to respond. It, it really has to come from within you in, in, in looking at it. And a good example of this might be when I first started practicing, maybe in the first three or four years, especially in the first couple of years, you know, I would refuse to move in the sitting no matter what. You know, it didn't matter how much pain I was in. I wouldn't shift posture. I wouldn't even budge. And sometimes it would be for many hours. And it wouldn't, I would just tough it out. And eventually, it kind of tired me out a little bit. Um, but at the same time, you know, I had to learn something about wise effort, you know, balanced effort. And then I, <laughs> there's a story about when I was at this three-month retreat. You'll get a kick out of this, I think. Um, it was the first three-month course. It was even before IMS was here. And it was a very intense retreat. And smaller, it was like maybe 35 or 40 of us. 
And it was 90 straight days of sitting and walking. And, um, you know, a few Dharma talks every other night or so. But it was, it was very intense. And, and pretty much nobody knew what they were doing at that particular phase, <laughs> including the teachers, <laughs> who have learned a lot. And I won't say who the teachers were, but you can find out. They're very good right now. They're, they're great teachers. But at that time, <laughs> it was the blind leading the blind. <laughs> so I was sitting, and I was sitting for many hours at a time. And I was sitting on a bench, something like the bench I have now. But this bench that I was sitting on uh, didn't have a cushion between me and the bench. And I was in the middle of a three-month course, and I was gradually, day after day, the pain, like in my sitting bones, got worse and worse and worse. And pretty soon I was like sitting in like, I mean, total agony. I mean, excruciating agony. Like as soon as my butt hit the bench, like within five minutes in the morning, I would be in this agony. And I would sit like that all day. And, and you know, I really thought that was a valuable thing to do. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, it kept me awake and like you know, people say, and I didn't space out that much. I knew what my predominant object was. Uh, there's no doubt about that. It was a touch point, a very vivid touch point. Uh, so, you know, my samadhi concentration got good. Uh, not much wandering mind. Um, not a hell of a lot of joy. Uh, but, you know, I did it uh, for day in and day out probably for many weeks. Uh, and then one day, I decided, you know, I'm going to put a cushion on my bench. This shows you how idiotic you can be <laughs> in practice in general. If you, if you think you're really out there, if you were around then, you would, really, you would think you were like really advanced. Um, so I put the cushion on it, and I sat down on the bench. And literally, it was like sitting on a cloud. It was like, I went, my mind immediately went into this deep bliss. And I just, it was like, things got so quiet. I mean, it was just amazing. I actually thought it was Nibbana for a little while. (laughs) And not for long, but honestly, it was just a tremendous experience. And, you know, there was a lesson in that. And the lesson was I needed a lot to learn about wise effort and, you know, balanced effort. So, and really what it came down to was that there was, a, there was a, obviously a lot of striving energy, you know, and we can see how counterproductive that striving energy can be. And then the other side of it is being too lax, you know, moving it every time you feel restless or bored, you just shift and you itch or you're skip a sitting or you have another cup of tea or whatever it is. You know? So there's those two extremes. And the Buddha talked a lot about those two extremes. And he described balanced effort as like uh, tuning the strings of a lute, just like an ancient guitar, stringed instrument. And what he said was, if it's too tight, you can't really play it. It's painful. If it's too loose, you can't really play music. And so for each individual, we want to find what that balanced effort is. And everybody is different. And it's also an ongoing process. So what might be balanced effort one year can change the next year. And so it's always kind of this investigative process, which I love personally, that there's not like 
one way of doing it, and you just do it, and that's you just keep doing it that one way. It's a it's a dynamic process practice, and over the years it changes all the time. And what wise effort is is really different. So it's always up to us to decide that. But in order to do that, you have to really know yourself really well. You have to really, really know yourself really well to see what your habits are. Do you tend to be lax, knowing those habits? Do you tend to be a striver? Sometimes strivers switch over to lax, and then lax back to striving. So finding that balanced effort, one way of describing it is gentle perseverance. You know, you're patient, you're developing patience and perseverance, you're not giving up. You're not letting some of these obstacles like sleepiness and restlessness stop you, but also you're trying to relate to the here and now and your practice in a very gentle, loving way. And finding that balance is not easy for Westerners. You know, where a lot of people come into practice with a striving mind, and then some folks come into it with so much self-doubt that it's very hard to extend oneself, give up very quickly. Uh, this is a very difficult question to answer. Is it okay to sit cross-legged? That's a joke. It's not a difficult question. Yes, it's okay to sit cross-legged. I, it's difficult for me to sit upright in a chair so, or to use the bench. Mercy. We've really, really emphasized the necessity and the, and the usefulness of, of finding a posture that works for you. If cross-legged works for you, I mean, that's usually the ideal I find that interesting. You know, usually that's what people think. You're supposed to look like that, or at least that position. Um, so yeah, sure, it's definitely sit cross-legged. Find the most comfortable position that you can sit upright that supports energy and attention, and you've got it. Can you recommend a good beginner's book on Buddhism in reference to mindfulness practice? Sure. What, what we're going to suggest, we're going to put it out at the end of this retreat, but uh, we'll put out our website for the Cambridge Insight, and on that there's links for reading material, and it's it's uh, categorized for beginners and sort of people who've been practicing for a little while or, or have gotten more into the books. So uh, there's many excellent books. Um, many of them are well known, but still, if you're a new person or beginner, it's good to start with good quality dharma, good quality uh, introduction, insight. Several of the Books are from teachers from this center, IMS, Joseph Jack, people like that. So that's a place to get it. Answered that already. Oh, this is interesting. After being on retreat for five days, I didn't even remember. Did you slip this in? I don't remember this one. After being on retreat for five days, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to do three months. I'm wondering where your imagination goes on that. Is it a positive or a negative? Could be the hell realms or heaven. I don't know what your imagination is, but uh, you can't really imagine it. You got to do it or not do it. Uh, It changes a lot doing three months. Sarah's done several, I've done several. Um, It's it's really definitely a full experience, as you can imagine. Uh, Sitting five days, there's no way you'd be able to get what that's like. Um, you might imagine it's always like this, or you might imagine it's never like this, I mean, by the, the middle. But it, it, it constantly changes. Um, it's a process. You know? And if you really, really were motivated to do a long retreat, 
you might start with the six week, you know, the, the half of the three month course if you really want to do something significant. Six weeks is a long time to sit for anybody that hasn't done anything more than five days. That's for sure. Uh, but you know, people dive in sometimes too. You have to assess that for yourself. But it, it, it is its own thing, and every it, it, every retreat I've done is different. I've never had a retreat that looked like the one before it. What, what, no matter what length it was, it's just life is unfolding. You know, the body mind process in a constant state of change. Uh, conditions are always changing, so your retreat, the material you're working with, whether you're settled or not settled, it you know, it changes a lot. It's very unpredictable, and I'm sure many of you are new. Probably wouldn't have imagined that it would have unfolded exactly the way it did, either as difficult as it might have been, or um, maybe some of the things that you saw were surprising. And, and that's how actually practice works. Although I would have to say retreats generally go in the direction of more ease as you practice. Not always, because sometimes you know some material might surface, or something's going on in your life that's very intense and you bring it to the retreat, so it can be difficult material to work with. But generally speaking, I would say, that's actually, I'm not sure I can say generally speaking, but I would say there, if you've done retreats before, I would say oftentimes there's more equanimity that gets developed. So when you encounter certain experiences, after you've been a new student and you've practiced here before, you come back for your second, maybe the expectation is you're not going to, you know, it's gonna be much better and that will get you into trouble. But if, if you don't have that expectation, you go into it, you might find that there's more equanimity when certain things come around because you've lived through it. You know? So you might not feel as overwhelmed or, or as fearful or as confused. And that's oftentimes the difference between a student who's been a, a yogi who's been practicing for a while and one that isn't. It's not that the different states of mind aren't coming up, but the way they're relating to those states of mind or the body pain or the different conditions they encounter, they'll be relating to them oftentimes in a very different way. Oftentimes with more spaciousness, more equanimity, sometimes more humor, but, and sometimes just a lot more clarity. But it still might, you know, they still might be dealing with sleepiness or restlessness or the wandering mind, but they're not thrown around by it so much. Well, this was a question. Could you review your instructions on how to make, in parentheses, negative thoughts the object of contemplation? Well, let's just say they're the objects of mindfulness. I'd rather use that word right now because contemplation can mean many different things. Contemplation can mean reflecting or thinking about the experience, and, and that can be useful at times too, but we don't encourage that on retreat. Um, sure, there are different ways of working with negative, and we've gone through several of them. One is to be mindful of it, to take it as an object of mindfulness. Uh, Another one that, that Sarah introduced was the compassion practice. You know, can you hold this experience with compassion? It's extremely useful for working with negative, what we call negative emotions. Well, I'll call them painful emotions rather than negative. Uh, but painful emotions like fear, anxiety, worry. It takes a great deal of wisdom and compassion um, to work with these, these kinds of things, uh, these states, these emotions, these moods, with skill. With discernment, uh, with loving kindness, um, so it's it's a, it's an ongoing practice, and and for us people, you know, for us practitioners, uh, uncovering painful emotions is often it, it is an aspect of the practice. There are very very few. I've known, never known anyone actually 
that's done practice, that hasn't encountered periods of time when the, that kind of material is, is coming up. And so uh, metta, for instance, the practice of loving kindness, is, was specifically taught to the Buddha, the practice of loving kindness, specifically as an antidote to fear and anxiety and worry. You know? So that was a, that's a common practice, but it's a practice cultivating that expansive quality of loving kindness. We didn't teach it this retreat. Um, maybe at a longer retreat we would, or maybe the next one, who knows. But that's a very helpful practice. It can be. Buddha thought it was. Um, to help bringing the mind into uh, balance with working with fear, helping um, develop more calm and more steadiness, uh, more confidence, you know, more compassion, more softening around those energies, being less judgmental towards it. Because, of course, those kinds of relationships to painful emotions make it much more difficult. So meditation practice is about working with your relationship to those painful emotions. Uh, the painful emotions might arise. They might arise after 10 years of practice. But again, if you've been working on your relationship to it, they can pass more quickly and that you don't suffer as much. So oftentimes we're looking at our aversion to those painful emotions. When fear comes up, there's an aversive reaction. When worry or anxiety comes up, or deep sadness or grief, oftentimes there's uh, aversion towards that because we don't want to have that experience. It's threatening in some way. So we're always working on our relationship to it. And mindfulness is one way of working on a relationship, but metta is also. And metta, I think, is a particularly powerful uh, practice. If you've noticed that there is a lot of aversion to painful emotions, if you notice that there's a lot of self-judging or a lot of self-criticism or a lot of fear, worry, and anxiety, sometimes the metta practice is really by far the most useful practice to work with. And many people at CIMC, uh, you know, practice it. It's taught there on a regular basis. And um, it's very useful. So if you wanted to learn more about that, how would we do that? We would go to Access to Insight. We would punch in Metta. And we would get a lot of the, we would actually get the Metta Sutta. Probably be the first hit. Would be the Metta Sutta, the actual Sutta where the Buddha introduced that practice. And then there would be many other suttas that probably would come into play around loving-kindness practice, because it's a significant uh, practice within this particular tradition. It's a softening practice. You know, it, it allows us to hold all this kind of conflict and tension that we're conditioned to feel. Okay, so I, I, I want to clear up this misunderstanding, because sometimes in groups, it's, you know, I misspeak. Uh, maybe I'm trying to emphasize a particular point and I miss the mark. Could be me. Sometimes it's the listener, the person who's asking the question. Sometimes it's just something that comes out of the dialogue. But this one says, you, this question says, you said you don't need to have a meditation practice to have a mindfulness practice. Um, I might have said that, but if I did, it's a little misleading. We'll get to that in a minute, but tomorrow we'll talk about it too. How would one start to maintain a mindfulness practice if they choose not to pursue meditation? I don't know. Actually. Good luck. Uh, so, uh, most of us mortals need a meditation practice to be mindful during our day. Under what conditions? 
is lying down meditation appropriate? Um, well, in many situations. You know, if, if someone has an injured back, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> We're developing a weird sense of humor on this retreat. Uh, yeah, if someone has an injured back uh, when you go to bed or when you're resting, um, you know, sometimes, even on a retreat, I used to practice a little bit of lying meditation. It's tricky because you can drop off. You don't, I never did it in the hall, but, you know, I would, like, sometimes after practicing really intensively with this sitting and standing, you'd be very familiar with this. The body can be very painful or aching a lot. And it can, like, just to lie down for 10 or 15 minutes and do lying meditation can be very relaxing. Um, so the lying meditation is one of the four postures. There was one story in the Buddha's teachings where you know someone got enlightened when their head hit the pillow. Did that happen to anybody? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Leave me a note if it did. Uh, so lying practice is one of the four mindfulness postures, and it's very valuable practice. And certainly if you're not well, you're not sick, or you're dealing with an injury or disability or aging or whatever it might be, I mean, you can be damn sure, I hope, in my, on my deathbed, I'm doing lying practice, some of it anyways. I'll be doing a lot of metta, and I'll be doing some mindfulness practice. That's how I see it. Uh, if it unfolds, which, who knows? But if it unfolded that way, I would hope I would ha- have that together. Michael, can you let us know how Larry is doing? Yeah, great question. Uh, Larry's doing great. Even when he's sick, he's doing great, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, he, he, know, he really knows how to take care of himself, but his thing is he's very vulnerable to colds. And this has been, I've known Larry a zillion years, and he's always been vulnerable to colds. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's just, you know how it is. We, we all have our, like, little weaknesses in the body. Uh, and, you know, teaching in a community setting uh, in the city, uh, it's really easy to pick up stuff. Really easy. It's hard not to, actually. Uh, and, you know, like I say, he celebrated his 80th birthday, so it takes him longer to bounce back from a really bad cold. And that's literally all he had. Was, it wasn't even the flu. It was just a really bad cold, but it really has a major effect on his respiratory system in talking, in energy level, as, you, as everybody knows. And that would, not, that would not have worked for him to come. I mean, I'm much more protective of him than that and, you know, wiser. I would not have done him any good at all to come. But, it's, but probably by now, he's probably, I haven't contacted him in a few days, probably by now he's probably done with it. You know, he, he knows how to take his care through herbal treatments, and he, he knows, he's like an herbalist, basically. He really knows a tremendous amount of, about natural healing. Uh, so he knows a lot of the things to do in order to recover from that. But he's doing great, and we're going to, did we announce that yet or not, about the notes? There's, well, I don't quite know. I'll tomorrow. Okay, we'll announce tomorrow morning, but there's a way to kind of communicate to Larry via notes. Sarah will explain it tomorrow. She set it up. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. How do you take on... Well, let me check the time. Oh, we're still good. Uh, how do you take in one suffering without making it your own? It's a really good question. 
I guess it kind of depends a little bit on what you mean by taking in one's suffering. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me there's different ways of taking in one's suffering. One is that you really receive it and you meet that person and you see the commonality of that experience. In other words, there's, there's that non-separation experience. You know, it's that recognition that we all suffer. And this might be a particular form of suffering, but we get it. And honestly, meditation practice, getting to know yourself, sitting, sitting with yourself, and just watching the incredible amount of conflict and sometimes all the difficult physical pain that we put up with, adjusting to the sitting practice. I really think, it's just, it, it really, I think if it's done correctly, it generates compassion for sure. I mean, you, it's humbling, and we need to be humble to be compassionate. Uh, we can't go around thinking we're hotshots or we're special or we're different. Or we're, you know, none of that. That doesn't work at all. Uh, so taking in one's suffering, I see it as, being, as receiving and meeting and then responding with an open heart. Taking on someone's suffering is different. To me, taking on one's suffering is like over-identifying with it taking it as one, one's own. And it's not. You know, I don't see it that way. I see connection out of that place. But I don't see taking it on in the sense of carrying it, carrying it or putting it on you. Because I think inevitably that will feel like a burden. Uh, and I, I don't actually think that, I, don't, I think that the compassion needs wisdom. You know, they both need to work together. Uh, discernment, like what skillful action. Sometimes if we take people suffering on, we get overwhelmed or, or we get unclear ourselves or we begin to suffer in ways that aren't useful to us. And so we need a lot of wisdom along with the compassion uh, so that we can hold someone's suffering and respond to it skillfully because that's what we want to do. When we meet suffering, we want to respond with skill and with compassion. And that requires wisdom. And it requires, you know, being able to recognize suffering and hold it without being overwhelmed and kind of letting go of that sense of uh, separation of self and other. And that's, that's just seeing things as they are. That's just seeing things as they are. There's no solid self or other. We're connected. But I think sometimes people are very sensitive, you know, and... and um, it's hard not to accumulate suffering of others and, and really have it affect you in a way that is uh, quite burdensome or psychically you know, heavy, um, maybe even sometimes harmful. And so we have to, once again, the key is self-knowledge, kind of seeing how you're relating to all that. And sometimes you have to, you have, we might have limits in terms of... Um, you know, how much we can be exposed to suffering and what kinds of suffering and things like that. That's quite subjective. And we're geared in different ways in terms of how we respond to suffering. I know I am, for sure. Self-knowledge, knowing yourself is really important in all of this, in all, this, all these questions. Um, the wisdom piece and the compassion piece, a lot of it comes out of self-knowledge because you're, you're dropping that the whole construction of self and just your true nature is coming out rather than being obscured. And it's just natural to be compassionate. And it's, it's natural to have a clear mind. The confusion that we experience is conditioned. 
it's not our nature. It's conditioned. In other words, it's caused by the conditions in which we've been subject to. The wisdom and the compassion we're talking about are just natural states. And when we clear away the conditioning by watching our reactivity and being mindful, we, de- we decondition the mind, and then we discover those natural qualities what we pointed to the last time, which was those, you know, those innate qualities. As the conditioning clears out, all our preconceptions and conditioning, all these qualities like joy, equanimity, calm, all of those are really the natural state of the mind. This is funny. I don't even know if I can answer this one. I don't know if I have it in me. Um, if things keep changing all the time, how can we make up our mind about anything and stick to it? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, well, um, let me think about that for a minute. Probably should have thought about this before I read it. <laughs> If things keep changing all the time, how can we make up our minds about anything? Oh, I know. I, I got it. I got it. I got it. <laughs> I got it. What leads often leads to procrastination and indecision is the habit of self-doubt. And it's one of the reasons why I think meditation practice is so useful in Vipassana and why we mention self-doubt several times. And you can see, you've been sleepy for uh, three and a half consecutive, let's just say you've been sleepy for three and a half consecutive days and you're tired of it, you have aversion to it, and then what happens, what, what arises is self-doubt, which is a mental state, and it starts telling you you made a big mistake, or it undermines your effort. Uh, you begin to chip away at yourself, and that's self-doubt. Um, and you know, there's a difference between investigation, you know, looking at, to see if something's appropriate, whether you're on the right path, or you're in the you know, discernment around relationships, or jobs, or whatever, and that's an investigative process. But then there's another, uh, process, a habit of mind, which is self-doubt. And self-doubt often, when we get caught by self-doubt, of course it undermines us. And then it often does lead to indecision and procrastination. Because say we do make a big de- need to make a big decision, and many of us are in that position on a regular basis, I think. This, this society, the culture we live in, uh, we're constantly facing significant decisions in our life. Uh, so uh, we want wisdom, again, wisdom in, in uh, operating, uh, driving the investigative process is clear thinking. That's what we want in equanimity and balance. Uh, but when self-doubt takes over, it's a fear. Uh, it's a, again, it's conditioned. In other words, we learn to doubt ourselves. We learn to second-guess ourselves. We learn to undermine ourselves because that's, that's what we've picked up along the way. And so we apply that, that learning and that education, that training to, to doubt ourselves. So when the present moment comes up, you know, we, we really begin to second-guess ourselves. Whereas if it was an investigative process, like what we talk about in Dharma, developing discernment, it's much more open-hearted. It's like if you have to make a decision like you're thinking about moving, you know, you're, you're able to look at it in a balanced way. And, and then, uh, you know, if you start chipping away and say, oh, this, this isn't going to work, I can't do it, blah, 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 the mind's all reactive and fearful and anxious, you can't really necessarily trust that decision-making, and then that course undermines you. Whereas if you can kind of step back, take a look at it, maybe talk to a couple people who are wise, not unwise, but wise, who know you, and get wise counsel, but also you know, just kind of hold the feelings that are related to making that decision. That's very, very important. You know, if you have a big decision to make, 
don't just focus on uh, what I should do. You know, look at how I'm holding what should I do. You know, what's the energy that's driving that question or the answers that are, that, that are coming out? And it, like if it's anxiety and worry and self-doubt, you know that you can't necessarily trust it. So you, nur- you need to nurture more calm and relaxation and then ask that question again from a more spacious place, from a more open-hearted place. And I think this habit of self-doubt, let me just finish with that, is it's pervasive in our culture. Remember when I said it was a conditioned state? Well, we're living in a culture that's ideal for self-doubt. You know, just about every condition uh, that we're living under uh, generates self-doubt. Um, the level of competition, you know, the struggle for resources, the, it's just on and on and on and on. The changes, the transition, just a million things going on. And, and our education system, all of it, um, generates a lot of uh, self-doubt. I mean, there's certainly, certainly there's, a, there's a plenty of arrogant folks running around, too. But what I run into um, with people who are on a path and is a lot confronting a lot of self-doubt, you know, that's the material that they're often working with. Um, and then metta practice can also help with that because it's a form of fear. So sending yourself some metta to kind of calm the mind and soothe the mind and to tap into more of an expansive, like your unconditioned nature, you know, your true nature below the surface of doubting yourself. And then you can begin to see that the doubts, the self-doubts are just fears. They're not reliable. But sometimes you have to kind of nurture the opposite quality, like mindfulness or metta. And then, then you see it more, that self-doubt becomes more transparent. But that's why one of the reasons why we kept saying, look at the sequence. Because the sequence can be something's happening, you don't like it, the aversion, like it could be physical pain, and then the doubt arises. So like if you decide you want to move, for instance, from one posture, you know, it's helpful to see what the, what the energy is around making that decision. Is it that you're doubting your efforts or, or is it more like an investigative process? So let's see what happens when I move or what arises when I think about moving. You know, does self-doubt arise, start questioning that I'm moving because I'm afraid or I'm doing the wrong thing or I'm failing at the practice? Well, those are all good signals that you're getting caught in self-doubt. That's not an investigative process. We're making decisions. We're judging ourselves. Um, about that process. It's not open-hearted investigation at all. But it's just a habit of mind. So once you begin to identify or recognize self-doubt when it arises, it's tremendously freeing. And I've done a lot of that work. And I know when you can take self-doubt and recognize it and see it as a mindfulness object, uh, it's tremendously empowering. Like we think if we don't have self-doubt, we'll be okay. But actually, that's, that's, that's wrong understanding. All we have to do is be mindful of self-doubt when it arises and it loses its power. So we don't have to create an enemy of that particular state of mind. We just have to see its transparent nature and it loses its power. We see it as a mental state like anything else. And then it doesn't have that hold on us. This takes a lot of work. You know, I'm talking, but <laughs> talking's easy. Uh, but doing this work is in the trenches, in the, you know, developing that continuity of mindfulness, the steadiness of attention, so that you get... Your, your awareness gets more subtle, so you begin to pick up all these little attitudes or reactions that you have when something unpleasant happens. And Dharma practice, a lot of it is that. 
When something's not that you don't like is painful, you always have to be looking at what you're doing with it. And that's the path to liberation. Because if you know what you're doing with it, it opens up the possibility of doing something new. That's the deconditioning process. You're not feeding the moving away. You're seeing the moving away. And so you don't have to continue practicing the moving away. I hope that makes sense. That's how practice works. That's how mindfulness practice works. That's how we get free. And that's how we get to the end of Q&A. Um, obviously, I didn't get to all the questions. Um, that's how it goes. Why don't we just sit for a minute and be rest in silence, and hopefully your questions uh, will get answered at some point. <coughs> So a few metaphrases. May I be at ease? May I be peaceful? May I be free from suffering? May we all be at ease. May we all be peaceful. May all of us be free from all forms of suffering. Thanks for the questions. They were, they were great. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.